Today, we travel beyond the wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Windor that is more than just outtakes. As promised, we are finally using this podcast title to discuss media outside of New Century. We're calling this episode Greg's Horror Homework, where I was given a challenge to watch ten horror movies that I had not yet seen. Now, if you put my feet to the fire and ask me what the impetus was for this list being made for me, I honestly don't remember. I know I've gone on record multiple times as horror movies not really being my genre, no matter how good the movie is considered to be by others. And even that is not telling the whole story. Long before I watched these ten films, I have watched, enjoyed, and even loved movies that have horror elements in them. Like most geeks, I have watched Terminator films, Aliens films, and Predator films, all of which have liberal use of horror spice. Pitch Black, Happy Death Day, and Pontypool are among some of my favorite movies ever. I'm intrigued by any piece of media that includes meta-elements, which means that I watched and enjoyed Cabin in the Woods, Shaun of the Dead, the original Scream. I'm glad to have seen every single Jordan Peele horror movie, Nia DaCosta's Candyman, Dr. Sleep, Crimson Peak, and Annihilation, as I feel I got something out of those experiences. I've even enjoyed horror as an element in other mediums. I've played the Resident Evil and Dead Space franchises, a couple of the Silent Hills, Control, Virtue's Last Reward, and Telltale's The Walking Dead. The Sandman comics were built around a core of horror properties, and the very first New Century book I listened to was a horror narrative to its bones. Given all these bona fides, it might lead to one question. How can I actually say that I dislike horror as a genre? I can't even necessarily say that I only like media where the horror is blended with many other genre spices, because in several of the properties I just listed, horror is the dominant spice. And here's the answer that I came up with. Whenever I hear that something is a horror movie, I have more of an internal barrier to overcome. I have a knee-jerk reaction that a quote-unquote horror movie will include a lot of elements that I find distasteful, including the movie trying to scare the audience excessively, a surfeit of blood and gore, and a fixation on killing and terrifying its characters. These are all things that make me more inclined to not want to watch the movie and I would rather spend my time watching media that I think there is a good chance of me finishing and enjoying. As a result, that means there are a number of horror movies that I have never watched. Films that are classics of the genre, or made by extremely good directors, or even just have good storytelling and powerful themes that I would gel with if I gave them a chance. So after a School of Movies community watch in October of 2022, 
Alex Shaw and Alejandro Vargas sat down and gave me a remit to watch ten horror movies that are a mix of those above categories. They wanted me to go outside my comfort zone and interrogate my biases with these essential picks. Over the course of several weeks while Maureen and I were suffering from COVID, I decided to sit down and finally give these movies a try. From that experiment was born this podcast episode you're listening to now, where I get to discuss the experience with my co-host and friend Toby Skeels Jungius, or a quote, and one of the people that gave me this list, Alejandra Vargas. Hello! Where? When did you get here? They also have watched all these films, and I'm intrigued to open up a dialogue with them to see where we agree and where we differ. Before we start, however, let me make a few things clear. First, talking about the ways in which movies are made is not my forte. I love listening to people that can talk about every aspect of filmmaking and take an extra effort to go behind the scenes to learn more about cinematography, directing, editing, scriptwriting, animation, soundtracks, special effects, color grading, all that jazz. That does not make me good about analyzing most of those aspects, and I will never be as good at it as Alex and Sharon, or Lindsay Ellis, or Princess Weeks, or Mikey Newman, or Dan Olson, or Patrick Willems, or any of another dozen people whose work I follow. When Toby and I began Through the Window, it was very deliberately not a school. It was a fan podcast, which meant that we wanted to discuss a piece of media we loved, but not necessarily from a learned standpoint. At its core, we were talking about how it made us feel, and what thoughts the stories evoked from us. And that's primarily what you're going to hear from me tonight, although I'm sure that Toby and Alejandro could speak more on other elements of the filmmaking. There are, I am sure, reasons why some of the movies on this list are brilliant, because one or more parts of the making of the film is a tier or above. But since that's not what gets me going, you mostly won't hear me judge films on that basis. There are three primary criteria that I use to judge how I rank the movie, all of which are subjective. One, did I enjoy the story? Two, does it include characters I like and or sympathize with? And three, does the story have a greater symbolism that I can appreciate? Now you can have story and characters, and you can have symbolism and story, and you can have all three concurrent or consecutive. But you can't just have characters and symbolism. Story is compulsory. But I can't use the qualifiers good story and good characters and good symbolism. A film that is competently or even excellently written, edited, and directed does not guarantee my favor any more that a movie that has deficiencies in its craft guarantees that I will hate it. Sometimes I don't like a movie because of choices the creators made, and sometimes it loses points because of reasons beyond their control. You will hear examples of both on this very list. Finally, I will add that I rated the above ten films using the School of Movies ratings wheel from their episode called We Need to Talk About Fandom. It ranges from secure love, to like, to indifference, to hatred, with the final category of obsession between secure love and hatred. I did not hate any of the movies on the list I was given. 
the movie that ranked the lowest got a rating of dislike, but can still see merit. And my number one pick is staunchly under Secure Love. I'm also going to add another tangential variable on whether I would watch the movie again. And the three answers for that include, I would watch it on my own. I would watch it if somebody else wanted to watch it with me. And I will never likely watch this movie again. But before we tackle them one by one, I'd like to hear from my two cohorts. First, from Toby about the experience in general for him, and from Alejandra on how the list was made. It's more fun when it's a dialogue. I mean, it's better if someone says, no, I disagree with you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the thing, is that with most of our experience doing what we do, Toby, we're in agreement with each other so often that I need to, we need to shake it up a little bit and actually have something where we have differing opinions on so that we can do a little Cisco and Ebert. I mean, what am I going to do? Am I going to like have a heated argument with you over New Century and create a schism in the already like reduced fan base of New Century? No, no, no. We're gonna have we're gonna have a schism. We're gonna have an argument with Alejandra. Clearly, no. <laughs> That's right. It all went wrong when she showed up into the. So I wanted to ask. I'm not gonna like necessarily give like my full like review opinions on these movies because it's Mm -hmm. about you. I can give like minor thoughts on most of them, but I wanted to ask Toby, what is your experience with horror movies? I dig them. I don't know when I first started getting into them, but uh, yeah, there's certain subgenres which just don't do anything for me they're a sort of mystery for what the appeal is thinking saw basically i i struggle to think of many other series that do what saw does unless they're specifically trying to copy that but Mm -hmm. that one seemed less horror and more experimenting with where your safe word is like you know (laughs) everyone goes through first saw and it's like okay this is good and then in one of the other sequels, you at one point will start to say uh, Fnuffleberry or something like that. So, um, <laughs> Chuckle Bunny! Chuckle Bunny! <laughs> For the most part, the best way I can sum up the interest that me and Sarah have in horror is... For Sarah, she's unusual in that, given a lot of her other interests, a lot of people are actually quite surprised when she's quite enthusiastic and interested in horror. And it's... The uncovering of the mystery that I think she quite appreciates, because with horror, there's always a certain peeling back of the layers of you go from the familiar to the unfamiliar, and that transition between them is something that kind of always gets its hooks in her. And for her, she finds it difficult for horror to get the ending right is a sort of middle ground where it's not that she always has to have a definitive answer to it but if she has enough that she can hook on to then she really gets into the experience and I like that process of discovery as well because for me it's the idea of you are identifying the fear and that identifies something within yourself what is actually going on what is the fear and what reaction does it have for me and What does that say about me? This. This right here is why I need Toby around. He brought forth a personal perspective that made me further consider my original conclusions, 
So thank you as always, Toby, for opening my eyes and helping me make this experience more nuanced for myself and others. Well, shall we go to Alejandro first? Because I think it's uh, more appropriate to actually see the genesis of yeah. these 10 films and perhaps like why them and what was the remit of the 10 films you selected working with Alex? So the 10 movie list was uh, Alex's idea. He just wanted my input because I'm pretty well known in the community for being like a horror buff. I wouldn't go so far as to say expert. I do have my blind spots and I'll get to that. But um, we basically just each had our own like list of ideas. And then we kind of just like merged them into a top 10 list that we kind of trimmed away at. One of our original suggestions was uh, Tremors because Tremors is a really good monster movie that is fun and uh, a little tense without being, like, super aggressive in any particular way. Um, but apparently Greg has seen that one. Did enjoy it. It won't be on any top plan list of my own, but do agree, fun movie. Yeah, Definitely so that one eventually movie. just fell off the list because you had seen it. Mm-hmm. And um, we that was really the sticking point. Like, we had to replace Tremors with something. Discovery was the operating remit of we wanted this to be a list of films that Greg would discover. Yes, and the idea was to not necessarily pick the classics of the genre, because the classics of the genre have their own issues. And it also wasn't just to pick the scariest movies or the least scariest movies because that gets you like because we assumed greg's problem wasn't that he's a big scaredy cat (laughs) oh mine is (laughs) oh no toby i'm so sorry you had to watch (laughs) uh, the old ways and uh that's horrible for you (laughs) oh no i saw you love excellent film yeah (laughs) we'll get um the point was to find horror movies that are sort of exemplary examples of how horror can be used to enhance a story and how some stories are best told from the perspective of horrifying the audience. Also with the perspective of Greg being the person this list is for, if this was just like a general any human being list, it would have been a little different. Mm -hmm. Um, And to replace Tremors, we were throwing around all kinds of stuff. Uh, The Fly was mentioned at one point, but The Fly is uh, very, very gross. That sound when Alejandro was talking was a loud crack of thunder, as we had just started to get a torrential downpour when we started recording. Great background noise that was sadly not picked up on enough on the mic, but keep it in mind that Mother Nature decided to provide appropriate atmosphere for our recording. Uh, We were also considering The Babadook, but it was a little overlappy with a few too many of the films like thematically that we have. Like we've got mm-hmm. two movies with Del Toro's fingerprints on them. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. <laughs> and the old ways, I would argue, also sort of overlaps a little bit with it. Exactly, yes. Um, so we eventually ended up going with Halloween, which is pound for pound the best classic slasher you can show someone i know it wasn't necessarily like a huge favorite amongst the group but it is a genesis point for that entire like subgenre without being incredibly icky and just for the fun of stabbing teenagers before we continue it occurs i didn't actually say what was on the list so the movies we're going to be talking about today are 
The Wicker Man. This is the original from 1973, not the one with Nicolas Cage that everyone likes to make fun of. It is not the not the bees one. <laughs> exactly. The original Jaws. Which has... is kind of iffy on being a horror movie, but it counts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Anything we'll... that has that theme probably should count. Yeah. Dun, dun, well... dun, dun. <laughs> we'll definitely talk more about how my uh, reaction was informed by, is this a seminal horror work or not? Then, of course, we have the original Halloween, as Alejandro just said. American Werewolf in London from 1982. Evil Dead 2. The Devil's Backbone. The Orphanage. The Purge Election Year. The third one, notably. It Chapter One, and finally, again, as already mentioned, The Old Ways, which is the newest one on the list. And I can't say for certain, I'd like to talk it over with both of you, but I feel like it's possible that the movie I enjoyed as much as it was because it's a more modern one, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. When I started getting into this list, I was automatically under the assumption that the older the movie was, the less likelihood I would enjoy it because it was dealing with cultural themes that were more or less out of date for me, particularly if they were lacking in progressive areas. But surprisingly, that's not always the case. That exact concern is why you didn't get The Exorcist on your list. Mm. Um, that is absolutely a seminal work of horror. Um, it's actually not that great of a movie as far as me and the Shaws are concerned. <laughs> mm -hmm. Also, Psycho, where very well made, you could definitely uh, make an argument or a case that it counts as horror. It has a lot of stuff loaded into it. Like when I saw it the other day, it just sort of the ending was, I think that would be written differently or should be written differently. <sighs> oh, yeah. Let's go with that. Let's go with should. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, I'm absolutely going to spoil parts of these movies, as I'll need to at times to explain why I felt the way I felt. Not every movie, and not every part of every movie, but if you have not seen these ten films and want to, maybe you should watch them first before hearing my thoughts. There was another movie that we didn't put on the list Based on the 1995 novel, The Haunting of Hill. Okay, so there was The Haunting from 1963 was mm. considered. That one was one that Alex thought you might find a little underwhelming because mm. Willow really kind of bounced off of it at the end. Ah. I personally think that one's fucking fantastic. But... Mm -hmm. mm. The who's holding my hand moment. Don't spoil the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, so, don't... Editor Greg, you can cut that out so that future Greg doesn't get spoiled. <laughs> it doesn't work that way, Toby. I'm sorry. Sorry, you said The Haunting from 1963? Yes. Okay. It's a say, remake with Owen Wilson in it. Yeah, don't fuck with that one. <laughs> okay. The problem with some of these horror IPs is that they have similar names. Prior to this recording, I did see the movie The House on Haunted Hill which has nothing to do with either the book, the movies, or the show called The Haunting of Hill House. And even The House on Haunted Hill has two versions. The original with Vincent Price, and the 1999 remake with Jeffrey Rush, Famke Janssen, and Tate Diggs, which is the one I saw. I bring this up for two reasons. 
One, the House on Haunted Hill remake was up for an award for Worst Remake of 1999, and lost to the Owen Wilson Haunting remake. Second, I can't say I disliked that movie. I wouldn't call it good, per se. Enjoyable trash, perhaps. But I also appreciated the ending, in part because the black guy survives. Let's move on, though. To be perfectly honest, as a result of watching these ten films, I went on to finally cross off the list some other seminal favorites, which I didn't necessarily think that I could get through. Um, The big one being John Carpenter's The Thing. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, I I, I, I was pushing for that one. That was my little sort of addendum contribution. Exactly. I, I admit that I'm glad to have seen it because I've heard it talked about a great deal by other lovers of the horror genre. Linkara, in particular, is an enormous lover of the original film, which is why all of the comics that were using that property later on piss him off so much. But I, I also have to admit, this is probably not a movie I would ever see again because, holy shit, some of the visuals from that did, in fact, freak me the fuck out. That's part of why it's so fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> it's... There are films that I go to and say, this does this element of filmmaking better than any other that I've seen. That one, it's practical effects. I've never seen anything else just do it with that much success. There may be others where you could make so many arguments of there's technically more impressive effects that are being rendered, but for me, it's just every single instance that practical effects are all working towards something, that one is the goat. If there's one thing I appreciate about John Carpenter's The Thing is that it's not simply about the paranoia as well as the gory special effects. From Dusk Till Dawn has plenty of disgusting moments in it. For the record, did not enjoy From Dusk Till Dawn. It's specifically the body horror parts of it and the way it makes a shapeshifter utterly terrifying if you take it to its logical conclusion. But we're talking about a movie that didn't even make the list now. Yeah, yeah, okay. The honorable mention. The the honorable mention. I do just want to point out that, you know, at the very least, thanks to this list, it encouraged me to keep going. And who knows? If people like hearing us talk about this, Maybe there's room to actually make it into a separate side podcast. Someone mentioned Greg versus Horror at some point as a title name, but we'll see. I like the Greg Horror picture show. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was the one that you came up with. The no, Greg- no, obviously it has to be the Gregory Horror picture show. No, there you go. What, what is it, because of that you need enough enough syllables? or Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly it. It doesn't rhyme otherwise. Yeah, okay. What is this, amateur hour? <laughs> well, excuse me. You're not excused. Well, thank you so much for coming on to this show, Alejandro. It's <laughs> been a really great one. Greg, we are not having her on again. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to do these in reverse order in terms of the one that I like the least and the one that I like the most. Toby has now watched all 10 of these movies himself. He had seen some of them already, 
but there was a, like five of them which he had not seen up till this point. Yeah, so interestingly, it was a perfect ratio of 50-50. The Wicker Man, I essentially knew the entire shape of this movie, even though I hadn't seen it. The Orphanage, that one has been on my list forever, but uh, just hadn't had the excuse, and this was the excuse. Evil Dead 2, I decided to watch the first one, even though it wasn't, for reasons we will get into, necessary for this list, and had a great time with them, looking forward to seeing Army of Darkness. Purge Election Year, which, yeah, I think for other reasons we'll get into, was something I needed to get pushed into it, and The Old Ways. So, <laughs> yeah. No one's seen that one. Like, I, I hadn't even heard about it until, like, the Shaws mentioned it on the Discord two years ago. I know that it came out on Netflix, but I don't remember if I'd heard about it at all prior to. I, I got confused with it at one point because I had watched The Old Guard, which is a different action oh, movie yeah. based on a comic book. Very enjoyable, that one, but not a horror movie per se. Anyway, let's start talking about it. And we're going to start, as I said, with the one that I disliked the most. But it's still just rated dislike with merit. And to be perfectly honest, this is on my list as I could watch this again with someone else because I'd honestly be curious to see their reaction to it as it goes along and see if it matches up at all with my own. So, American Werewolf in London. Told me that I will become a monster in two days. Your dead friend, Jack. Yes. Gotta believe me, David. Believe what? You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're gonna change. The what? You'll become. I know. I know. A monster. Naked American men stole my balloon. What? What did I do last night? You don't remember? The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. It's you, David. Run! Good Lord. To cut straight to the heart of my opinion, it felt to me like the movie got the mix wrong. In horror comedies that I enjoy, all of the characters, including the protagonists, need to have a similar energy. Young Frankenstein, Shaun of the Dead, Happy Death Day, these are all examples of horror comedies where several members of the cast have good comedic energy. Sometimes it stems from characterization or genre savvy, sometimes from parody or narrative meta-text. And often they aren't just ridiculous or stereotypical characters and have greater depths. 
But the protagonist also needs to have this energy, even if they are primarily the straight man. Simon Pegg, Gene Wilder, Jessica Roth all have that mix of dramatic and comedic energy. In American Werewolf in London, everybody in the movie felt far too one-note for me. They're really only to push the story along, to base stereotypes, and maybe occasionally to be laughed at. Everyone except the main character. David Naughton, meanwhile, has good dramatic energy, but his comedic moments don't blend with the movie. Most of the time, he feels like an average man having his dramatic story stuck in the middle of a farce. And it still might be okay if the dramatic story had an ending I found satisfying, but it doesn't. Meanwhile, the few times he does have a comedic energy feel incongruent with the rest of the story. His antics are either like they belong in a different movie, or they are the actor itself making a commentary on the hackneyed stereotypes present in the movie. And while I do love me some meta, it doesn't do enough with it for me to sink my teeth into that either. In the meantime, the rest of the humor and satire falls flat for me. The movie felt like Mars Attacks, which sadly was also a movie I didn't care for. There's occasional moments where I went, ah, I see what they were going for here without laughing. And one genuine moment in the movie where I laughed. That's it. Just like comedy, satire is circumstantial and in the eye of the beholder. If you can't get your audience to jive with it, it doesn't work. And because the story that I was actually interested in kept being interrupted by the movie, trying and failing to make me laugh, I ended the movie thinking, that was it? Having said all that, I went on to peruse the opinions of others to see what I might be missing. And I now have an idea what the movie could have been going for, or at least an interpretation that makes the story make sense to me. The crux is this. Don't take the werewolf stuff as being something that actually happens. There is no werewolf, or at least no real one. The werewolf is symbolism. Imagine David was instead intact by anything else. Could be a person, could be a wolf, could be someone with a dangerous dog that also died during the event. The details don't actually matter. The importance is that David fled when his friend was attacked, came back and saw his friend savagely killed, and then himself was attacked and barely survived. As a result, he has a serious case of PTSD with him through the rest of the movie. Now, the PTSD is a component of the existing film to be sure, but my point is that with all of the guilt and the near-death experience, the idea of him hallucinating ghosts and having bad dreams are entirely possible without any supernatural component. Indeed, those around him keep trying to convince him that his dreams and hallucinations are merely a result of the trauma. But the PTSD is telling him that he is a monster, and since he isn't actually getting any treatment for the trauma, it gets worse. If he saw the inverted pentagram in the tavern and believed he was attacked by a werewolf, then it's entirely possible that his brain would latch onto that and try to make him believe he is a werewolf. Indeed, the definition of lycanthropy in our dictionary is not disease that makes a person turn into a wolf, like exists in fantasy fiction. Instead, it's qualified as 
mental disorder in which someone believes they are a wolf. It's a delusion, and trauma can certainly cause someone to develop delusions. There's even a version of lycanthropy and myth where a human doesn't have a physical transformation, only a mental one. Imagine for a second that the entire film happened as seen with two changes. There was no transformation sequence, and at the end, when David is shot by the cops, we do not see a hideous monster wolf, but instead a feral man in a fugue state. What you're left with is a simple tragedy. David survives a traumatic encounter on the moors, but because his PTSD goes untreated, he has multiple psychotic breaks and is killed by police when he attacks Nurse Price, after already having killed many other people. You basically have a variation on Rambo First Blood, only with a sadder ending. That by itself could be a story worth telling. It makes me think of Alex's exploration of trauma in New Century's alien world of autumn. But you'd need to either ditch the world component and make it more like First Blood, or you'd need to make it clear to the audience that David's trauma is an unreliable narrator, and the transformation doesn't actually happen. I might engage with the movie more then, but the comedic bits would still drop like a lead balloon, and more importantly, the story has a downbeat ending. David is consumed by his trauma, kills a lot of people, and therefore is shot dead before he can do further harm. To a certain extent, I get that being mad at a horror movie for having a downbeat ending is a little like complaining that there is too much beef in my hamburger. But not all horror movies have one of those, and most of the ones I like at least have the protagonist survive with some kind of cathartic victory. Annihilation, in my opinion, is a great example of this, and even puts the trauma and its metaphors front and center. The protagonist there comes to terms with her past and finds a way to move forwards. Meanwhile, I tend to avoid movies that have a dearth of hope as an endpoint, whether we're talking about the original Nightmare on Elm Street or Snowpiercer. And yet, after typing this, I cannot help but think about Alex's horror novel, Let Them Go. Sure, the protagonist survives in that story, but they do so having lost everything they care about and face a bleak future in a world that has drastically changed. That story does not end on a note of hope in the traditional sense, merely the possibility that while the protagonist lives, there is the possibility for them to survive and thrive. I love everything about Let Them Go and recorded several hours of discussion saying so with Toby in 2020. So the simple truth of the matter is that I can't call American Werewolf in London a bad movie. It has a story that doesn't speak to me, and characters that I don't care about, save, of course, with the protagonist, who dies. That leaves it only with symbolism that I now understand, and that's just enough to give it a dislike, but with some merit rating, and no more. Well said. Um... <laughs> I know, Toby, that it um, when you um, provided your ranking of the 10 horror movies to the Discord, it was pretty low on the list. I think it was number nine. So yeah. I'm curious now to hear how you felt about the movie. So 
Here's the funny thing. Despite it being relatively low on my list, when I hear that it was the lowest on your list, I went, oh, but the special effects, though, uh, (laughs) which is just exactly what you were talking about earlier. I know that special effects or visuals mean a lot more to other people. Alex and Sharon talk a lot about millennial rubber, or practical versus CGI, or good versus poor color grading. Toby is writing his thesis on stop motion, which is all about the visuals. Even Maureen cares more about special effects than me. This is not to say that I don't pay attention to what I'm seeing on screen, but I'm not keyed into it like others. I don't notice bad special effects the same, and I don't go to a movie for the special effects. The one-time visuals are important to me is when they are a component of body language and acting, a part of the characters that we are supposed to care about. In The Thing, the visuals did exactly what they were supposed to, make me legitimately terrified of the monster. But in American Werewolf of London, the transformation scene takes two and a half minutes, and I was disengaged after half that time passed. That's just me. Take it or leave it. It's amusing to me that for what you're saying is that for a different take on Mm -hmm. this film's story, if you took out the transformation sequence, there could be a certain amount of ambiguity in Mm -hmm. spite of the fact that the transformation sequence is like literally what anyone says about this Mm -hmm. film, if they're saying anything at all. And it's this moment of such brilliant tangibility Mm -hmm. and grottiness and it takes its time so that all of the details come through and Mm -hmm. that's why that sequence is memorable to me and i remember laughing at a couple of moments uh throughout it i cannot remember if there's any odd line here or there that doesn't age well uh because it has been a few years since i've seen it and that was ultimately the guiding principle of what i thought because the closest parallel or peer that this film has on the same films on this list would probably be Evil Dead 2 in that Mm. it is a horror, but it is kind of a fun time in a lot of senses. I had fun when I watched uh, American Werewolf in London and it occurs to me, why haven't they done a sequel that is a British werewolf in Washington or something like that? No, despite the fact that I thought I look on this film quite favorably, especially for my love for things that are practical and tangible and using a lot of things that emphasize craftsmanship because there is craft in any artistic expression, but there is something about the physical and the material that brings that to the forefront of our mind. The fact that someone made this, that it is happening because someone put a lot of effort into constructing it. So it will, secure a lot of points in my heart for that and yet I'm in less of a rush to go revisit it because Mm -hmm. beyond that I would struggle to tell you what the film was about quote-unquote until you went through a very worthwhile reading. It's a film that tries to perhaps have its cake and eat it in that it has that subtext there but it's not fully interested in that it's sort of wanting to do something that's a bit of fun as well. I mean If there's something that I appreciate is that making a movie is not necessarily the same as telling a story. Like, movies do have stories. Um, 
see there's a Wendigo outside the uh, window now saying like, I like American werewolf in London. <laughs> oh yeah, really? I wonder why. Um, <laughs> but is it relatable to you, perchance? <laughs> exactly. That entire monologue that I just read out to you, that's a rationale that I came to after the fact. Mm. At the time when I was watching it, I was going, okay, you know that there's a werewolf out there and yet you're being hostile to them and now you're going out and chasing them and you kill the werewolf, but he's bitten David. Why don't you kill him so mm. there's no more werewolf? My brain kept on going, there's now, just too many questions here. Here's something, here's probably, we have come to a point where we have identified possibly one of Greg's abiding bugbears that may have got in the way of him entering the genre before now. In Ooh, horror... can, I, can I guess what it is? Can I guess what it is? Please do. Uh, trying, to, trying to do the plot better than the characters did the plot. Yes, or it's that sometimes horror requires stupid decisions to be made. But that's the thing, is that I appreciate that people make stupid decisions, and sometimes they make incredibly stupid decisions in horror, and when you're afraid, I get that maybe you're not thinking clearly. It's just that, like, even putting the horror elements aside, one of the things that annoyed me the first is after David's in the hospital, his best friend has just been killed, and he himself has gone through a traumatic experience. Meanwhile, the guy from the embassy is coming in with this big smile and asking him how he's doing. Like, the dude isn't, like, probably losing his mind. He has absolutely no bedside manner, and I did not understand how he could be this unprofessional. Like, just from a personal standpoint, let alone a story standpoint, I was like, dude, who the fuck are you? I don't have any insight on this one. This is one of the two movies on the list I personally haven't seen. And werewolf movies in general are just like a huge blind spot for me in horror. Like mm -hmm. I've seen Ginger Snaps and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, not a, not any of the classics. But there's also just not a lot of like classic werewolf movies. Mm. Like there's this one, which everyone likes to mention because of the transformation sequence. And then, of course, there's the Wolfman for Universal. And then anything beyond that, you're getting into sort of cult classic territory. Mm. I think there may be a factor to it. There's a very good uh, video from Overly Sarcastic Productions that actually looks into the history of the folklore of it and makes a case for all of the meat that is there in the concept. But I think for films, werewolves are somewhat, they're simultaneously overly familiar, like everyone knows what it is and therefore it maybe doesn't excite as much as others. But it also has the problem of you can't really have a personality come through in the werewolf when they're being the wolf. You know, Dracula, you get a actor to really bite into that, pun intended, <laughs> and then you just drink in all of the whatever they're going for in it, for good and for well, ill. Blood, obviously. It's but Dracula. Blood as well. <laughs> but the werewolf, you know, the actor and the character will if you're doing it traditional, really only be there for half the time. And unlike how they have done Hulk in the Avengers and Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe, we don't get the technology that allows a performance to come through. But I think that there's material there. And I think that 
if someone wanted to, they could employ some of that same benefits that we've seen when the MonsterVerse movies manage to actually characterize these giant kaiju in spite of the fact that they keep them very much like creatures and animals, that you can still do things that have character come through. On the flip side, um, there is like a whole subcategory of werewolf stories that are not horrific. Um, Everyone got a taste of this with Stephanie Meyer's Twilight Werewolves. But that whole aren't werewolves kind of sexy, though, thing is a whole subgenre. That's its own thing. And it's that's more of a romance trope, really, than a horror Mm -hmm. trope. Like, it's horror adjacent, but it's not a horror movie. Whereas vampires, even in a scenario where someone writes vampires as their, like, monster in their whatever YA universe, vampires are bad guys. Whereas werewolves, it's so easy to just be like, but werewolves are just big doggies. And you put a human brain in the big doggy and it's not scary anymore. Well, that... (laughs) And it has shirt ripping built into the material, so. (laughs) I think it also comes from the fact that we perceive wolves in general on a far less fearsome basis than they did in the era where werewolves are really big. Like, werewolves were things that killed your flock and possibly killed your, your family as well. Now we're like, oh, we killed all the wolves, but wolves are great. Wolves are dogs, you know. I want to make friends with the werewolves, just like everyone wants to make friends with Frau, Big Fuzzy Tiger. (laughs) Well, some of us are more successful than others in that regard, Greg. (laughs) Oh, oh, we're going there, huh? Look, someday I will fuck Colo Nash. (laughs) I will get someone to put that fucking costume on. (laughs) Get in line. I sure did have a good time tonight, Jack. Yeah, me too. Uh, maybe we could... Uh, oh, no. Tonight's the full moon? Run, Sally. Run away as fast as you can. I'm a werewolf. No, Jack. I'm staying. I love you. Wait, what? I love you. Thank you? Thank you? I say I love you, and you say thank you? Oh, Like, if we're going to do a werewolf story, then I would want to explore, better than Twilight did, the experience of coming to terms with the inner monster, whether we're talking about a werewolf or a, uh, a vampire or any other version of that, where, you know, as mentioned earlier, there is a darker half that is potentially dangerous, much like the Hulk is. Mm. And it just doesn't feel like. American Werewolf in London is going for that because David doesn't have a chance to come to terms with it. He doesn't even have a chance to prevent himself from doing further harm because right when he might develop the spine to like, okay, I do need to kill myself like everyone is saying. Is that part of like what people keep saying? It's like, oh, you should kill yourself. Like, Well, that, that okay. So the scene towards the end, after he realizes he is a werewolf, 
and he's in the porno theater with his decaying friend yeah, that, and the yeah, ghosts that, it, of all of his friends. They're like, <laughs> yeah, you should absolutely kill yourself. And they're being like, you know, there's a stereotypical British husband and wife go, with, with big smiles on their face going, yeah, it kind of sucks that you killed us. Maybe you should drown yourself. And I get that was a meant to be part of the comedy. And again, it just didn't work for me. But yeah. during that conversation, all of a sudden, the sun suddenly goes down outside, and now he's a now he's a wolf again, and he doesn't have any chance to redeem himself in any way. And the film, I guess, more or less agrees with that sentence by the fact that it goes to where it goes. So, yeah. I, you know what we were going to say? Like, oh, I can't remember anything that hasn't aged well. Yeah, I don't love that. And for our listeners, there was a very amusing visual moment when Greg mentioned the finale of the film taking place at a porno theater and Alejandra just did a double take so uh yeah. i haven't seen it I, i'm yeah. sure i'll get to it someday i watch oh. a lot of movies mm. man are we gonna keep this pace up for every movie holy shit no, no I, I had the most to say about that movie because i felt like i didn't want to just come in and shit all over it like i was just doing for several minutes there i needed to understand at least a little bit as to why people might have enjoyed it above and beyond the transformation sequence. Maybe it is just the transformation sequence, but if you're not a special effects buff, and I'm not, then that does, doesn't work for me. So, so the mm. werewolf movie I would recommend, this mm. one's not so much horror as it is um, sort of a fantasy movie. It's not The Wolves Among Us. What the hell was that freaking oh. movie? You're talking about Wolf Walkers, the animated one? No, no. Damn, no, there's to... a... Uh, I think Sharon and Alex did a podcast on it at they one point. They did. Oh, it's You're like an anthology film. It's very good from what Interview I Interview with a vampire. I know the director did this movie. Uh, Company of Wolves. Yes. That's it. Great they did a name. whole show on that. But I can't believe that an, a werewolf anthology film wasn't called Wolf Pack. <laughs> So The Company of Wolves is more in the vein of, I'd say, Labyrinth than mm. a horror movie, but it is almost entirely about wolves and werewolf mythology. It's really goddamn good. Like, I was blown away. I liked it more than Labyrinth, but I have weird opinions about Labyrinth. Don't mind me. <laughs> I don't think I've seen many werewolf movies. I've read, I've seen werewolves more in books. Um, my One of my favorite series being the uh, Mercedes Thompson series, which is urban fantasy. I'd have to say if I had a favorite werewolf movie, it's barely a werewolf movie. It's Lady Hawk. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Rutger Hauer is a swordsman that transforms into a wolf at night. And the woman that he loves, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, is a hawk during the day and a woman at night. Oh, come on. <laughs> and a very young Matthew Broderick is his sidekick. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely check this one out. All right. <laughs> okay. okay. Company of Wolves and Ladyhawk on the that's, list. <laughs> that's the exchange that just happened there. Now, right. for the next film on this five-hour-long podcast. <laughs> <sighs> so, number nine, Halloween 78. The one. The only, the classic, Halloween. Halloween night. A small American town, 15 years ago. 
Michael? Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. Just talk. Sure, sure. sure. Mm -hmm. The only reason she babysits is to have one. Halloween. And I cut it off there because the rest is screaming and visuals you can't see. This was another dislike with merit. Fucking is... Halloween movies using that title like four fucking times. <laughs> yes, that's why I have to say Halloween 78 to specify which one it is. I, I'm uh, not going to watch... The Xbox of horror movie titles. <laughs> I'm not going to watch this movie again. Um, I didn't enjoy it that much at the time. And honestly, the only reason why... It got a dislike with merit. Oh no, you're doing the. And how many times do they use that lot, that uh, piece of music during the movie? I'm gonna it's go a good on. Theme. But they reuse it too much. I. It's like pick pick something else, please. Like Jaws. Jaws has an incredible soundtrack, and John. Now I get to understand why John Williams is as good as it is because I actually notice it in the goddamn like in the background in terms of the width and breadth of everything he does but that's pushing ahead. I, I was amazed when you were commenting on the discord about how the fact you didn't like the soundtrack because that's like one of the best parts of the movie i saw it in theaters a couple of years ago with like the full-on wow. sound system and it Lucky. was so good <laughs> I mean, i'd also i'd also just seen suspiria which is mm. a movie that tries to like crush your head with its droning what? orchestra pit mm, so the I, no the original but i really uh, appreciated going from suspiria to halloween where halloween is like no we just gotta synthesize it with some notes we're not gonna try and kill you don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> when you get right down to it i don't know that i dislike the halloween main theme it just felt like it was used it's implementation too much. yeah it's the exactly. implementation rather yeah. than the content yeah and if we're talking about content, holy shit, does the uh, understanding of mental health need to get an update in that story? Yeah, exactly. Mm. The lazy characterization in Michael, making him evil for no explored reason, never mind any resolution at the end for him, the Doctor, or Laurie. Laurie was basically the entire reason I was watching this. I wanted to see this original Halloween because I'm actually interested in potentially seeing... Halloween 2018, which is meant to be a sequel to this movie and this movie alone, or alternately, Halloween H20. Uh, uh, yeah, Alex is a big fan of that one. I saw trailers for that back in the day. And if this particular movie is part of the reason why Jamie Lee Curtis became really big, that's a reason for this movie to exist, in my opinion, because I love jamie lee curtis and i know that this was like a big break for her back in the day as far as the rest of it the movie feels like it has no valuable themes it judges those killed on the flimsiest of bases like slasher movies often do and at the end it seems like the only reason laurie is the final girl 
not because of any super strong characterization, but just because she's more responsible than any of her peers. Again, the only reason why this ranked higher for me on the list is, I guess, because of the paratext, because of the meta text. In terms of enjoying the story, it, it just it didn't work for me on any level, unfortunately. I love this film. I think it's, oh. despite the fact that it's relatively low on my list, like it's at number seven. Speaks there to are the fil- quality of these movies. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's almost as if a couple of people spent a really long time agonizing over some really good films. It goes at that place because I think that, as you say, the themes of some of the other ones just have more to offer in terms of just stuff that doesn't just get you on a primal level, which is what this film does. It gets to me on some sort of primal level due mm-hmm. to a combination of music, the stings of like, uh, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And not even necessarily when something intensely scary has just happened. It's just like a sense of something on the horizon. I think that with this, what I find is effective about it is that in so many horror films, there's the sense of people are trapped or they go away to somewhere and they get trapped there. There's a feeling of you are transporting yourself to somewhere else. But with this, it circumvents that because all of this is happening in the home and in a space that at this particular point in time had not really had a lot of horror that was set in an American suburb in a place that has... A place that you think should be safe and ends up not being so, yes. Exactly. With that in mind, I think that if you were to explore those themes today, there would be a lot more made about like just the company that you keep, the neighbours and things like that. It is this... Yeah external presence and while halloween gets accredited to like it's such an institutional perennial slasher film i also think that it's sort of like the prototype home invasion horror movie in that Mm. sense because that is what michael is doing and a lot of those things like the strangers or stuff like that Mm. or the one uh that i thought was quite good where it's i can't remember the title but it's the director who did midnight mass and the haunting of something and the protagonist in that is death so there's an antagonist who is playing with that the fact that she is death and so it's like the inverse of don't breathe in the sense that Mm. that film is all about a blind guy that at first you think like oh these terrible kids and invading the home of this blind guy then the blind guy messes up their day and you're sort of rooting for him for the most part and then that film ends in a way that is deeply uncomfortable uh so yeah not recommended i think there is something to what toby is saying about halloween being the beta for both suburb horrors and home invasion movies but that could also partly explain why i'm not a big fan I wouldn't say there are many of either type of movie that I enjoy, and some of them I even actively dislike, such as Funny Games, Last House on the Left, Straw Dogs, and the movie Toby mentioned, The Strangers. These are not movies I've seen, mind, but they are movies I learned about by reputation, and when I investigated them further, there was a strong repulsion instinct in me on learning more. 
That's not a hard and fast rule, as there were home invasion elements in Scream, I liked parts of Panic Room, and I very much enjoyed the Fright Night remake with David Tennant. I think it's more that these kinds of movies tend towards very grisly events and or endings. Anyway, going back to my actual original point, for as much as the whole analysis of the idea of Michael being pure evil is something that just does not hold up now, Mm -hmm. the film sells it. The film sells that idea that he is this spectre Mm -hmm. remarkably well, and the spectre haunting American suburbia. And the fact that we see the point of origin being that it is something that came from a house much like this feels like it is a spectre coming back home. I don't know that I can really go to bat for much more of it. I'm not really inclined to because like what the fucking John Carpenter's Halloween. Yeah, that definitely needs someone to defend it, right? (laughs) So yeah, I really like it, but there are things that are doing more complex themes that I will go to bat more. I do think that there is a a critical difference in terms of, and I've had some conversations with Alejandro about this before, is that if the idea of going to a horror movie is that you want to be scared, I don't go to movies to be scared. I don't necessarily, like, I don't mind if uh, if a movie scares me, particularly if it means that it's doing its job very well. But if that's the primary focus of a movie's M.O., that means that it's it may end up falling a little flat for me because I don't want to be distracted from the meat of it, from from the actual story parts. The, the scaring part of it is going to come up again when we start talking about some of these other movies. Well, yeah, um, yeah Halloween, the whole point of Halloween, I, it's not a movie that was made with grand ambitions. Like, this mm-hmm. wasn't... God, who the fuck did uh, the Terminator movies... Oh, Oh, James Cameron. Cameron. Yeah, this is not James Cameron doing The Terminator, where he has big dreams and doesn't have the budget for it. And as you see in his later movies, once he has the budget, oh boy, does he spend it. No, this is John Carpenter, a man who lives and dies on vibes, Mm -hmm. and he's just kind of making a movie that he thinks is spooky for fun. And Mm. the reason people would enjoy a movie like this even if it scares them, is the sort of a roller coaster effect. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. why do we get on roller coasters? Because it's when you get off, you're like, that was amazing. I feel invigorated. And that's what this movie's going for. There's a spooky guy in your town and he's mm-hmm. hunting you down. You don't know he's there. Maybe one person's kind of noticed him. Also, mm-hmm. I, I like this movie a lot. I don't have to defend it, but it's also very riffable because when you remember that Michael Myers went to prison when he was like nine mm-hmm. and then like the movie starts up 10 years later, he's like 21 in this movie. Where did he learn to drive? Cause he does that a lot in this movie. <laughs> it, like not just he puts his foot down on the pedals and goes places. He's able to control it with a fine degree of, let me just slowly creep up. I'm stalking. I'm stalking. And yep, yeah, let me just double park, uh, make sure I'm not within the lines. Uh, oh, very good. All right. It's, it's, uh, a, it's a progenitor of the slasher genre. And to that point, it's a lot better than many of its copycats. Mm. Like uh, you said that we're supposed to like dislike her friends. Are we? I don't think we are. Well, so that's the thing is that I don't dislike her friends. But, really. uh, but I've also heard, like, when you're talking about slasher movies, 
Friday the 13th being another one of the perennial ones, the whole idea is like, oh, these teenagers weren't taking care of the kids they were responsible for, and they're drinking and having sex. That's why it's perfectly okay for Jason or his mom to go around and punish them for their sinful ways. Yeah, people got a little confused on that one because the idea behind them being like horny teenagers is that they're supposed to be relatable to the target audience Mm. so that the thrill effect is enhanced. And also, horny teenagers like seeing other horny teenagers have sex. Will you two cats stop fighting? Goodness gracious. It is absolutely super easy for that to drift into a moralistic viewpoint, which I don't think the first Halloween does, because there's that one Mm. girl who gets stuck in her underwear out of a window and then Mm -hmm. walks across the street in underwear. And, like, from my perspective, I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I'm seeing someone do in this whole movie. But the movie doesn't judge her for it. Mm. And she just does it. At worst, it's eye candy, which, fine, whatever. I'm not going to, like, moralize on eye candy. Not like there isn't any eye candy in some of these other movies. I certainly didn't complain about it in in The Wicker Man. But, again, we'll get there. One last thing, though. uh, The Halloween series is super, super unreliable. Even within, like, the main timeline, Mm. the sequel to this almost immediately starts doing that, like, oh, the nurse was having sex, and that's how, like, Michael Myers got out of the hospital. It's like, Mm. oh, okay. You retcon from moment one, okay. The third one is a bit of an outlier because they decided at movie number three, hey, this is an anthology series. Forget about the second one. And then when people were like, yeah, but it's Halloween. It has to have Michael Myers here. Then he said, okay, we're not doing that anymore. So for a Which is a shame because of- Halloween 3 is quite good. I will say yeah. that, that that tune is very catchy. Having now lambasted this movie thoroughly, I would like to come back and say a couple positive things about it. First, if you are at all interested in learning more about the making of Halloween, I highly recommend the first episode of The Movies That Made Us on Netflix. Watching that gave me a much greater respect on what people went through in order to make that movie. But to focus on the kind of topic I'm good at discussing, let me instead talk about a way in which Halloween does work for me. If you're going to have a suburban horror, then a topic that does interest me is the idea of evil being able to hide in plain sight. That if you're privileged enough to live in the suburbs, the community tends to automatically assume you're one of them. Especially if you are white and God-fearing and all that jazz. Therefore, Any story which turns that on its head and says, no, sometimes evil is in plain sight, and the real danger is not the other, but people that look like us, that's the kind of story I tend to enjoy. But that doesn't work for Michael Myers. He doesn't blend into the world like, say, Vampire Jerry of Fright Night. He doesn't even have a clear, motivating force, like the Revenant that is Jason Voorhees, or the Sadist that is Freddy Krueger. But suppose for a moment we ignore that Myers is at all human, since he sure doesn't act like one. Instead, look at the killer of Halloween as something more fundamental. Not evil per se, but more like tragedy. Something that exists in the world, a fundamental axiomatic truth. Bad things happen sometimes, and they happen to good and bad people alike. 
You can't always prepare for it, or fight it, or avoid it. There is no malice behind it, no driving force at all except its very existence, much like a natural disaster. All you can do is try to survive it when it happens, and heal in the aftermath. That's what Myers represents to me in this movie. Something that you cannot kill in any meaningful way, because it is entropy. If suburbia is meant to represent privilege and wealth and safety, then puncturing that illusion is a meaningful message that should be in a story. Loomis is trying to destroy entropy, and cannot. Laurie is trying to survive entropy, and does, but at a cost. And that is where that story ends. All right, number eight on my list, Evil Dead 2. Four years ago, in this quiet forest, in this cozy cabin, something happened. Something so frightening. Something so deadly. Something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. Now, from the creator of Evil Dead, comes Evil Dead 2. Classic. Absolute classic. <laughs> Absolute classic. This one, I jumped up a few levels. I think it would be very difficult for a movie to garner an indifferent response from me. Indifference is kind of saved for the stuff that I haven't seen yet. Once I see something, I'm far more likely to have an opinion on it. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't score higher than the green meh level, because... On the, on the color wheel that was provided, there was meh on both sides of indifference, one yellow and one green, and so the green is what I ended up in. Having said that, this is one I would potentially watch again, and it's because this is a form of satire that worked for me. The meta elements and the overuse of the camera as a representative of the evil spirits it made me laugh more at parts of the movie than be scared of it. Again, in this case, the overuse of that just made me go like, oh no, the camera's coming for you again. Watch out, Bruce Campbell. And that's the other part of it. Bruce Campbell is a goddamn Muppet in this movie, and I can see why he became beloved enough to go on to have a great career. Mm, a true fan favorite if there ever was one. It's also one of the few movies where I was not repulsed by the violence and gore because there are people that talk intelligently about this, say that horror movies are sometimes go cartoonishly over the top, and so therefore they can't take the violence seriously. This is one of those few occasions where I think it reached that level with me. There were some genuinely unsettling moments in the movie, 
feels like what they were going for in the original, and it's something they probably hit a lot harder in various remakes. But I was able to laugh at this movie in places, but I, because I just couldn't take it seriously. And it's also clear that the movie kind of intended that for me, from the moment where Bruce Campbell goes into the shed and looks for the chainsaw, and there's an outline where the chainsaw is supposed to be and isn't. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) This film is fucking hilarious. I I had an absolute riot with it. I did enjoy the first Evil Dead film because that one is made on a... It is just completely different world, despite the fact that it is kind of like Evil Dead 2 is simultaneously like an abridging of the first one, a remake of the first one, and a sequel to the first one. Yeah, the continuity is fucky as hell. (laughs) Yeah, because the first 10 minutes or so of the Evil Dead 2 tells the story of the first one, but in the first one, there's five people that go to the cabin. Mm -hmm. It's uh, Ash, his girlfriend, and then three friends who don't matter, which is why they're cut Mm -hmm. here, but... You see bits of damage and stuff that happened in the first film that never gets represented in the second one. Things like you can see there's two holes in the front door and a Wendigo going past. Um, (laughs) And that's a bit when uh, Ash is just leaning against the door for far too long and you know that two arms are going to crash through. And sure enough, they do. And it's great. One of the best pieces of advice I can give to people is don't take the film more seriously than the people making it clearly are. In this instance, it's like, look, you know enough about this. It's not important. We're just here to have a good time and let us tell the story we want to tell this time. And with that in mind, Bruce Campbell in this, like Ash becomes like the goofy of horror. There are moments where he more or less is going like, and just bits where like he's being kicked down the basement it is just everybody hates ash is like the alternative name to this where it's just kicking down on him again and again and what's especially wild is that bruce campbell is in the first evil dead movie playing ash and it's like it's not really anything. He's just there. No, he, he's a generic protagonist, straight man. Like, there's even a moment halfway through where one of the friends says, like, hit her, hit her when there's a monster. And he's, like, sort of panicked and not really doing anything. And if you think that's some sort of arc where he's going to become, like, a lot more active. No, no not really. In the second one, it just has fun. And it spends the first half hour essentially just inventing crazy shit to throw (laughs) at Ash. It's unrelenting. You think to yourself, ah, so the threat is gone, so we're going to do some sort of time skip and he will be in a different circumstance. Oh, no, he can't get out. No, he's he's fucked. Okay. Uh, And then the stop motion of his girlfriend getting up and doing a dance and it's cheesy and goofy and we love it and the bit where everyone, his hand is like smashing plates over his head is the best bits of physical comedy I've ever seen. (laughs) And 
Whenever you can't see Ash's evil hand, you have to be asking, where is Ash's evil hand? <laughs> exactly. They put a farewell to arms on top of the bucket to hold down his demonic hand. That <laughs> is mm-hmm. one of the best visual gags I've seen in any movie. It rivals the <laughs> sort of things that you see in the Wallace and Gromit films of just them having these perfect pun titles in the background blink if you miss it and this is just the best like someone was really proud of that like they they (laughs) frame it perfectly i I was confused at first where i didn't understand in the beginning that they were doing a really quick recap of the first movie and i just at the first i was just feeling like did i turn over two pages at once (laughs) i needed somebody else to explain I needed to read and be like, oh, okay, so we're supposed to... I had the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And that made it more... But that's it's at that point where it's just like, okay, more stuff is going to happen to Bruce Campbell for the next 25 minutes. And that's the enjoyable part of the movie. The second other people start getting involved, we'll be like, oh, here's where they're trying to take it seriously again. How foolish of them. Please just take the camera off of them. Give me more... Bruce Campbell mugging for the goddamn camera. The best way to sum it up is the Evil Dead is Full Metal Alchemist. Evil Dead 2 is Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, where, you know, we're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning encapsulating the stuff that you saw in the first one. And then when we get to the new stuff, it's all hitting to the fucking 20s. And kind of a weird comparison, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I make weird comparisons. Some of them work, some of them don't. Uh, you get used to it. The best way to summarize this film is just that fucking sequence where the whole room starts laughing and then just Ash starts laughing too. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's one of my favorite shots in the movie. Evil Dead 1 is much more of a horror movie than it is a horror comedy. Like, there's pits that you're obviously supposed to kind of enjoy as a horror fan as like, ooh, they're doing something really cool with their effects. Like, that's the enjoyment level they're shooting for, but it's a horror movie. Oh, and then the sequel, Army of Darkness, that's just a fucking comedy. That, that yeah. A completely off-the-rails comedy adventure. But this one, it really strikes the balance between horror and comedy in like an almost 50-50 shot, which is really hard to do because they are very different emotional reactions to try mm. and draw out of people. Um, and mm. the bit where like he laughs into the camera and the whole room starts doing like... I don't know, Pee Wee's Playhouse on him. It's amazing because, like, it's inherently funny to watch, like, the lamp bend down with him. But it's also, like, the moment you realize, oh, he's not okay. Like, mentally, (laughs) this man is falling apart. (laughs) There's not really much more to say about Evil Dead, I, I don't think. It's fucking great. I keep using that phrase because it's the best way to describe it. It was number five on my list, despite the fact it's like an instant classic with me and I love it. It's there fucking four. great. <laughs> it's fucking great. <laughs> it's just put that blurb on the back of the box, you know. Toby Skeel's youngest, 2023. It's fucking great. <laughs> I mean, it's not the kind of movie that I would go to see on a regular basis, but... I liked it enough that, again, I would be willing to watch it again, and I can see, I I get the hype now, I understand it. If I had to compare it against other horror comedies, I wouldn't say that the story of Evil Dead 2 is better than American Werewolf in London. It almost barely has a story. 
But here, the things that I liked about the movie were not the story. I know I said at the beginning that I can't enjoy a movie without a story. But this is one of those exceptions that proves the rule. Bruce Campbell and some of the trashier bits of the movie were enough for me to give it the equivalent of a C-. Alejandro said that the movie is 50% serious and 50% comedy, but I couldn't take the serious bits that seriously, and other parts that maybe weren't supposed to be funny were to me. The movie had elements of tonal whiplash, where a movie like Happy Death Day knows how to keep the blend of comedy and horror and drama at the right equilibrium. Number seven, It Chapter One. When you're a kid, I think that you'll always be protected, cared for. We like hanging with you. Thanks. You shouldn't think it's too much. Hanging out with us makes you a loser, too. But when you're alone as a kid, the monsters see you as weaker. You don't even know that they're getting closer until it's too late. Where's the poison ivy? Nowhere. Okay, well, I'm starting to get itchy. I'm pretty sure this is not Do you good use the same bathroom as your mother? Sometimes, yeah. Then you probably have crabs. That's so not funny. Aren't you guys coming in? Uh-uh. It's gray water. What the hell is gray water? It's basically piss and shit, so I'm just telling you. You guys are splashed around in millions of gallons of dairy pee. So, what are you, are you serious? What are you... Doesn't smell like caca to me, senor. Have you ever heard of a staph infection? I'm also a staph infection. This is so unsanitary. You're literally, this is literally like swimming inside of a toilet bowl right now. You're the reason why we're in this position right Guys. now. Guys! Whose sneaker is it? It's Betty Ripson's. What if she's still here? Let me kind of pitch this one from Alex's perspective. In terms of a horror movie, this is the best Stephen King you're probably going to get. I would argue that Doctor Sleep is better than this, but I also get that the Doctor Sleep movie is a hybrid of the books and elements of the Kubrick movie, which King famously did not like. It's in the genre of children having to deal with monsters which is a very tricky genre to nail mm -hmm. and the first it chapter one movie i'm not a huge fan of it god damn did they nail those kids mm -hmm. <laughs> hey phrasing well i i read it as like with reservations i probably would watch it again but it kind of lost points for me for a few reasons that are personal i get the whole idea of it being a seminal Stephen King work, and as you said a moment ago, the originator of the trope of children having to deal with horrible monsters. But in this particular case, it kind of, the movie suffers for me due to the fact that I have a specific trigger point with children being cruel to me. And while I get that that's an important theme of the movie, that's unpleasant for me to watch for deeply personal reasons. Because, you know, you've got moments, obviously, where bullies are trying to hurt or even outright kill the protagonists. But even the, even the kids that we're supposed to like are kind of assholes to each other on a regular basis. And that means that the people that I'm supposed to be empathizing with... And I don't... I, okay, I can't explain why 
it was a problem for me in it chapter one, but it wasn't a problem for me in Stranger Things. The only thing I can think of is that Stranger Things is spaced out a little bit more and has many different protagonists doing many different parts of the story, whereas this one is focused on just the losers. And, you know, maybe they each get their own individual scenes separately with adults, but it's always something going on with one of the kids. I'd have to rewatch the show to be sure, but I do feel like some of the dialogue in It Chapter One might have been lifting directly from the book, and therefore had more of a cutting realism than anything that Will, Mike, Dustin, and Lucas ever said to each other. I did enjoy some of the characters and themes, and felt like there was a solid underlying story. But the movie puts a lot of stock in its horror sequences. And because it had to include personal scenes for a big cast, it felt like the scares just went on and on and on, and it was constantly ramping to reduced emotional effect. I liked the movie best when people were talking. And it felt like the scary scenes therefore got in the way of the part of the movie that I enjoyed. What's he going to do to them? Well, one by one, he's going to get them alone, and then he's going to pop out and scare them. Oh. Yeah, give them a real good spook. What does he do then? What do you mean? After he scares them, what happens? That's, that's about it. Is it hard for the kids to get away? Oh, no, no, no. Super easy. Barely an inconvenience. Oh. Yeah, in pretty much every instance, they'll just run away or even just leave the room. Wow. Mm-hmm. How come it's super easy for them to escape and not the kids at the beginning? Well, there is a reason for it in the book, but we're not going to talk about it in the movie. I feel like we should talk about it, though. What, what is it? The kids are under the protection of a cosmic turtle god that vomited out the universe. Yeah, maybe let's not talk about it in the movie. Yeah, probably shouldn't. Mm. The book also explains that Pennywise likes to kind of marinate them in fear before eating them. But we're not going to explain that either. We're not going to explain that either. The movie may suffer a little from being a remake of one of the seminal works a lot of other people saw and built off from decades ago. But if this was going to be the modern remake of it, because obviously there was an older one with... Um, Tim Curry. Tim Curry. Tim Curry, yes. For some reason, I'm suddenly blanking on his name. As far as it being the best version of itself, I think it is. And it would rate higher if not for those personal hang-ups and if not for the over two-and-a-half-hour running time. It's quite a long one, and it's part one, uh, where the yeah. part two is just not good. Mm-hmm. In really any version, like if you're at all familiar with like the things that happen in uh, Stephen King's novel versus yeah. the adaptations, he was on a lot of cocaine. Yes. Mm. <laughs> so I have heard. I I've read a few Stephen King novels, so I have a sense of what he's like as an author. I read The Green Mile, which was five books before it was made into a movie with Tom Hanks. I also read, and I have no idea why I chose to do this, I read Thinner, which they made a equally horrible movie out of. I feel like I might have read some other works in the past. I saw the um, 90s miniseries they made out of The Stand. Not the best thing, but there were parts of it that I definitely enjoyed, thanks to some good acting on, on the part of Rob Lowe and Gary Sinise and stuff like that. And... I really enjoyed Dr. Sleep. There are definitely elements to the mythology of Derry and how 
the adults are all sort of quietly complicit in everything going on that I was really into. I was really into the characterization of some of the kids. Although, to be honest, I have a hard time remembering their names. I remember Ben, the big kid that was really into the library and history, but most of the others I remembered only as the Jewish kid, the hypochondriac kid, the kid that lost his little brother. There was only one girl in The Losers, Beverly, and at time of recording, none of us remembered her name. We've all only seen the movie once. That's still not a good sign. And I liked Beverly. I liked getting into her story the way it did without going into gross places uh, like the book did. Again, this is just from what I heard. I haven't actually read the book. I guess I just feel like this was a good movie that I just couldn't get into as much as I did as some others. I read the massive book that this thing was. So all your complaints about how the film just feels so bloated uh, mm -hmm. and also simultaneously doesn't have enough time to necessarily inject as much of what you were valuing and what you drew from. But to me, that almost feels like that's just spiritually perfect for the mm -hmm. book it's adapting. <laughs> when I first saw it, it's always funny to have a conversation about it because when I go, when I first saw it, I'm using <laughs> it in the lowercase i version. Yeah. But either way, when I first saw it, I thought this is a perfect adaptation of what the book was because mm -hmm. I had that love with reservations and those reservations ranged from uh, this aspect of the story could be balanced better. He probably needed an editor here. Definitely don't include that bit, Stephen. Well, holy shit, what were you on? That but, was the ketamine scene. Holy shit. Yeah. The Tim Curry adaptation, I never liked. I mm -hmm. saw it after I had read the book because I was like, oh, man, I need to see how someone adapts this. It's like, oh, cheaply. Um, <laughs> and... God, what's the name of the actor who plays Pennywise in this? Skarsgård. Oh, the, the younger Skarsgård. Skarsgård the younger yeah. is fantastic. It sound like a Viking. Yeah. <laughs> His name has a goddamn umlaut in it. Are we sure he's not a Viking? Mm. And he is perfect at playing Pennywise in a way that Tim Curry always excelled at just sort of amping up the fact that this was a clown and it was like his audition reel for the joker essentially mm -hmm. but not a especially intimidating one obviously your mileage varies and for some people he traumatized them but for me he just never had that either the feeling of him being a threat or that hint of the bigger picture that pennywise was connected to because pennywise is really like the glowing light on the tendril of the anglerfish, of the deep sea beast that is connected. So he wants to lure kids towards him so he can shapeshift into whatever they're afraid of and then feed on their fear. Yes. So why does he take the form of a terrifying clown to lure them in? I don't know. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to take the form of something they like to lure them in? Probably, yeah. Like, if he's in the sewers in the late 80s and he's trying to lure kids, why doesn't he take the form of, like, a ninja turtle? Yeah, no, that would be smart of him. Anyway, he goes with Scary Murder Clown. Each of the losers, like, again, mileage varies. I love those kids. I thought they were, they played each one great. I instantly got the camaraderie. There's some very funny lines like, they're gazebos. It just felt like this was doing exactly what I needed. And yeah, 
the sequel is not great. And that's after you have an opening that is deeply uncomfortable to watch and just not necessary, really, mm-hmm. I, in my opinion. And you were talking about how it's hard to see children being cruel to children and it just sort of is something that really is hard to watch. The opening of the second one is very much going with just a scene of a hate crime being committed against Mm -hmm. a gay couple and there's never any writing of that. The only connection it has to things that happens later on is that they add essentially subtext but like as explicit as they can be with that of making one of the adult losers essentially in the closet and Mm -hmm. when like developments happen there's it gives an extra bit of tragedy but that has that kill your gaze trope Mm. which so all of that is no good the first one just feels like an unmuddied version of this story where my awareness of the book helps me to fill in the gaps and think of all the things that is implying and hinting at later so I sort of already have the hypothetical part two of this book in my mind already so it still works in isolation and it taps into all of the larger themes that I thought were the biggest strengths of the book so that's why I ranked it at number six just after Halloween Mm, but uh, just before Evil Dead 2 which was number five Now, from my perspective, I didn't like Stranger Things. I watched the first season. It's fine. This movie exists because Stranger Things was such a hit. Stranger Things was very obviously inspired by it. For the record, the Duffers were pulling from multiple King, John Carpenter, and Spielberg sources. And I think the fact that it wasn't just pulling from one source is what made it as good as it was. It's the same reason I like New Century. And mm-hmm. then they're like, "Well, let's let's fucking do it. The the uh, iron's hot. Let's do it." And they did. They, they made a good movie. If I were to recommend a Stephen King movie, I would have recommended Doctor Sleep. But that mm-hmm. would not have been good for this list because to watch Doctor Sleep, you should really watch The Shining, and that's two movies, not one. Both of them quite long. <laughs> I saw The Shining a long time ago. I don't remember why. Again, this is one. I, I get the impression that somebody else was watching it and I tuned into it and it's a long movie that takes a long time to build and to be perfectly honest in comparison to other horror movies the movie is plenty scary but if you're going to watch a movie that is not high on really disgusting bits the, the shining original one is is full of dread overall and there's a few distasteful parts here and there but it also has an ending that is satisfying on some level. I'm pretty sure I saw Dr. Sleep as a result of listening to Alex and Sharon talk about it. So I had actually already seen it before the list was made, so it wouldn't be applicable for the list anyway. I Mm. did, in fact, love the shit out of the movie. Once more, I think the fact that it's a hybrid for multiple sources is what makes it as good as it does along with some modernized sensibilities. I will never be tired of that one scene towards the end where Danny confronts the specter of his father in the bar. Yes. (laughs) Fucking great scene. Wow. The whole... (laughs) That whole film has this 
like the text itself is so rich, but it does have, as you say, this meta element of mm-hmm. cohesiveness with the main narrative, which is that he is having to put the ghost that haunt him to bed in the same way that this film is trying to reconcile these two threads that have never mm-hmm. overlapped. They have been in opposing forces and it weaves them together in a way that I think... And in a similar way that the Doctor Sleep novel was written by King and his son, uh, Joe Hill. Mm. Like, there's just a lot of powerful creative imagery behind that story. Mm. And man, it all just paid off in the end, didn't it? (laughs) Really did. No, it did. But I will not be better at talking about Doctor Sleep than Alex and Sharon were. And so, but it's also not on the list. But then again, we keep getting diverted anyway. So let's move on to the next one. Number six, The Devil's Backbone. Here is where we're starting to have a little bit, like I couldn't figure out if I was going to put Orphanage before Devil's Backbone or Devil's Backbone before the Orphanage. This is one of the movies that I want to rewatch the most after having listened to the School of Movies show on it. I feel part of my disconnect is that coming from a different culture and therefore having a lot of elements that I had to look up or having pacing that is different from what I'm used to, leaving me feeling confused in places. I finished the movie feeling that I got the gist, but I really need to look at it with fresh eyes, I think, knowing what I have to keep in mind as I'm seeing the elements of the story play out. Once more, the movie suffers from children being cruel to each other, and it actually got more under my skin with this one that's I, uh that's surprising because like I, I found that it uh would really like have the characters sniping at each other even late into the movie mm-hmm. whereas it was really just more like an early hazing thing which i i agree i did not enjoy but it was a very early part of the movie but at the same time as the movie progresses and the children become more closely knit together when we see the flashback where we understand what's going on in Jaime's head and why it is that he's as afraid of Jacinto as he is. 
it starts to make less sense to me why it is that he's the lead in hazing the new kid and why he's not trying to be protective of him instead, considering what happened to a friend of his at Jacinto's hands. I mean, I, I have a really good answer for that, but I feel like mm. that's covered in the School of Movies podcast on it, so yeah, I'm not going exactly. like, to step on their toes. <laughs> no, I, and, and, I, and I do kind of understand it now after having talked with it online, and I get that it's, it's true that fear is just a powerful motivator, and considering how full of despair the setting already is with the war and just trying to get by with so little as it is. One of the things that I didn't understand until something clicked in my head is that there are strong structural and thematic similarities between The Devil's Backbone and Let Them Go. And in retrospect, that helps me to appreciate the movie more. But it also kind of highlights the big reason why I enjoyed Let Them Go more. I was far more invested in Rebecca as a character than I was in Carlos. I mm. think that whenever you're dealing with any kind of story where the lead is a kid, like above and beyond the specific caveat of not enjoying seeing kids bullying other kids, I kind of need to get inside their head a little bit. I like, I like smart kids. And I'm not saying that Carlos isn't smart. He does think to actually talk to the ghost after all. But it doesn't use the same storytelling language that I'm used to to reveal that. And a lot of it is is unspoken. You kind of have to draw out the what's going on in these various characters' heads. And that's true for the adult cast as well as the, the children cast. But it's still Guillermo del Toro. Oh, it's and, and it's Guillermo del Toro finally hitting his stride, too. 100%. It, there's one thing that I didn't get until... The uh, the guy that does the Innuendo Studios YouTube channel uh, revealed to me is that there is strong thematic resonance between The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, The Shape of Water, and what was the... Oh, um... Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak, yes, exactly. The title of that YouTube video is specifically that one movie that Guillermo del Toro keeps making... And mm -hmm. obviously the monster, the enemy in each of these is different, but they all, uh, well, Shape of Waters doesn't include ghosts, but three of the movies include ghosts. And it's always a theme of the monster is not the monster. The monster is actually some human involved with man. the Shape of Everything. <laughs> <laughs> what is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. And the movie also just starts really strong. I, I like I like that it opens with that introspection of what is a ghost and that it ends the same way. It, ha mm. it has a really strong beginning and a really strong ending. I like some of the metaphors going on with war and the unexploded bomb and all that sort of thing. The only reason why this ranks as low as it does has nothing to do with Guillermo del Toro because Guillermo del Toro is a fucking genius and is very good at what he does. It we don't want to everything. upset him if this is the one episode of ours he listens to. <laughs> I could talk about other movies of his that I love unconditionally. I could definitely mm. talk about Shape of Water or Crimson Peak. I know the Crimson Peak in particular has come up in reference to our discussion of Gothic and everything. 
But I mean, I watched it back when we were covering Let Them Go because mm. that was required reading, essentially. <laughs> Greg, do you have more you would like to say before I, I do I my thing? I don't have more, but I do know that this ranked as number two on your list. So I'm yep. very curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, if you hadn't mentioned that opening and closing narration, then I would have. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, on the strength of that, narration alone i would have probably put this in the top three what secures this bit in second place is that it just has so much more weaved into it than just that beautiful poetic insight into it which whenever i've considered the concepts of ghosts this is what my mind comes back to it is as far as i'm concerned a definitive statement on Mm -hmm. what ghosts are to us what they are in the collective psyche and to individual people for it to tell the rest of the story that is either i believe the brother film or pan's labyrinth is Mm -hmm. the sister film to this i think that it has this excellent staging with a very tight and lean set of uh, locations despite the fact that it's really mainly at one location which is mm-hmm. this while since i've seen it so an orphanage or is it a um um well it's it's an orphanage now but it was it was something it, else prior to was it a church beforehand or something else but it's essentially been repurposed mm-hmm. and that alone does more because this could just be a purpose-built orphanage but it by saying it used to be something else, it shows the radical transformation of the time immediately. I've gone back to confirm or deny, and everything I've read says that it's just an orphanage, but honestly, that's not the feeling I get from the place. Maybe the School of Movies episode can clear that up later. The bomb you think will be this thing, like it's the Chekhov's gun, and you think, oh, that's going to explode at the end of the movie or something like that, but it doesn't. And that's because it is this monolithic symbol of everything that this film is and everything that you don't even see in the film, but is just out of camera, out of shot. The idea that it brings in this idea of ghosts being there, and I saw this before, Crimson Peak or his other films and the idea of ghosts being there in the literal sense, but that not being the source of danger, the the idea that the real threat is the living rather than the dead. It just plays with so much. And in addition to uh, uh, Let Them Go, a particular scene that really comes into New Century is everything with the Doctor Mm-hmm. who is one of my favourite characters in the film. He's Cesaris, great. Yes. Yeah. There's a scene at one point where the main kid, I think, is going into his offices, and this is the first of many Del Toro films where he has some strange fixation on jars of uh, embryos <laughs> in, yeah. in pickled juice or something like that. He thinks they're cool, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I mean... It's a it's a visual. Like, I don't see anyone else who was in a rush to pick that up as like their thing. And if it was his only thing, then we would have less to talk about. But he has so much more. There's that sense of tension and unease. And I think that Cesaro even offers a drink. And what that is, is that scene in the definitive edition of Secret Rooms, mm-hmm. when there's 
the the doctors uh gives abigail and james the smilax ornata yes (laughs) there's so many moments that stick with me with Mm -hmm. this and it echoes I, i saw it once and it's still so clear in my head and echoing out and i love that final visual of the ghost of Cesara's uh, still there, mm-hmm. still keeping support and seeing the living children have this future. He doesn't, but that is okay. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful film. And I guess the reason it's not any higher is that these entries will change and go depending on the day of the week you ask me. But mm-hmm. today I saw the film that was at number one. So my mm-hmm. feelings on it are very intense. And also it just has that type of horror story that is my favourite kind of horror story, so Mm -hmm. how could it not be? There was basically no way we wouldn't include something like a Del Toro movie on this list, um, Mm -hmm. because Alex and I have our taste. (laughs) (laughs) But for a horror movie list, this one is the most uh, explicitly horror. Del Toro doesn't really make horror movies he likes horror movies and he likes using the uh techniques of horror movies but they're not just horror movies he never just makes horror movies this isn't just a horror movie it's Mm. just the closest to it in his catalog that's worth watching i haven't seen mimic (laughs) (laughs) the film that is you could call just a horror movie is on this list is probably like halloween it's going for pure horror and what people think horror is like that's what that film is whereas devil's backbone is like hey it's a ghost story it's like ooh so it's all about a ghost haunting people it's like uh yes but metaphorically also some fascism got to include yep. that <laughs> mm-hmm. i would argue that crimson peak is actually pretty heavy on the horror spice it's gothic horror and it's not necessarily what we would traditionally look at as horror if we're looking at slashers or saw or you know other movies that take up far more room in the public discourse and the um pop culture and everything like that but i would definitely say that del toro even in the movies that are not strictly horror movies uses the horror spice very effectively for whatever it is that he's trying to do. It's it's mm. an older style of horror, mm. something that really didn't make it into movies because mm. it was a, a, a literature movement that was predated the movies by a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm. The concept of movies by a lot. Yeah. <laughs> if you're curious about the YouTube video about that one movie Del Toro keeps making, I'll include a link in the show notes. But for now, that's it. We've made it through 10 through 6 on the list. Next episode, more Behind the White Scars with the Shaws. After which, you'll get to hear our thoughts on the remaining movies from Greg's Horror Homework. To play us out, a track from one of my favorite horror movies, Happy Death Day, composed by Bear McCreary.